is Brent and Nikki from Unapologetics, and we took, took a, a left, left at the, the valley. valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud of being an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Coming to you from Frigid, Canada, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I've wrestled with my demons, but sometimes we just snuggle. Aww, that was <laughs> sweet. Do you guys snuggle in front of a fireplace with blankets? Absolutely. Oh, I want a demon to snuggle with. Joining me as usual is a team that knows that time heals all wounds doesn't apply to those hit by a clock. <laughs> she asked the first lady if she bleaches her asshole, and Melania said no, he gets spray tan. Nancy. <laughs> Hey, at least Melania knows what you're talking about. <laughs> she knows that life is hard, but it's a lot harder if you're stupid, Christina. Not necessarily, because you can just be president. <laughs> and she never grew up. She just learned to act in public. Kirsten. Exactly. <laughs> Oscar award winning actress, Kirsten. Ladies, welcome back. It's Hope good you had a- to be back. Yes, thank you for coming back. I decided to pull myself out of bed this morning. (laughs) Get my puppy off my chest. Yeah, we feel good that Christina's back. Yeah. Yeah. I have a new method for getting her out of bed. It's just not right without you. It's all, it's just, you know. It's just not. Yeah. It's boring, guys. And my dear... Uh, we wished it to, to you last weekend there, but yes. happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. So you turn like 21 now? 23. Uh, Ooh. Wow. Hey, hey, guess how old I am? Guess how old I am? <laughs> 13. <laughs> no. I'm also 23. Yes. Oh. You're both 23. You guys didn't wish me happy birthday. Because you weren't here. You weren't here. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> Happy unbirthday and yes. birthday. Yes, yes. Now we just need tea through twenty seventy three. Let's cover everybody. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so today we'll be talking to author James Fodor, and uh, about his book um, Unreasonable Faith, and we'll be exploring especially he who will not be named Voldemort. No, William Lane Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you can't set that up and not expect me to go for it. Fair enough. That's fair enough. <laughs> it's been there every like every week and I've been resisting. But first, <laughs> let's do a chit-chat. Did you guys hear that apparently measles is up 30% worldwide compared to 2016? I had no idea. Wow. Is that because of uh, the anti-vaxxers? Well, that's yeah. what the WHO and U- uh, United uh, oh, wow, European experts are, bas- are basically saying. They're blaming anti- the anti-vax movement uh, because, you know, of people saying like the NMR vaccine leading mm-hmm. to autism. Uh, there's been especially spikes in South America. Mm. That's really worrisome. Yeah, I know. My yeah. family, most of my siblings have not vaccinated their kids. And we're getting together for Christmas. I'm like, you guys oh. are going to kill each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Uh, like uh, people are telling me all the time, oh, don't get the flu vaccine, all that. Well, you know, I I got the flu vaccine uh, several weeks ago. And I'm uh, disappointed to report that I uh, did not uh, mm-hmm. get autism, nor did I get the flu. Well, <laughs> so. and, and the issue is... You might be able to fight off the symptoms of a flu. The issue is it is you can still get 
the virus yes. and be contagious it just without gives you a chance. showing symptoms. Yeah. So you can still infect people with immunocompromised like well, children. A lot, a, lot, a lot of people, yeah, that too. A lot of people have, a, especially for the flu vaccine, they'll say, well, you know, I got the flu vaccine one year. And I used to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll admit. I used to say that. I got the flu vaccine one year and I got the flu right away. Uh-huh. But when you start thinking about it... But if you get it right away, then you're probably already contaminated. Well, when I, when I rethink of that time where I got the, the vaccine and I got the flu right away, what happened is I stood up in line with a whole bunch of sick people. That's when I got it. And then they gave oh. me the shot, but it was too late, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you have to so. think more, more clearly about this. Uh, you guys know what David Attenborough? Oh, yeah, sure. The famed yep. biologist says uh, Trump is out on a limb. When he abandoned the UN climate process, and grab he said, a saw, quick, yeah, grab yeah. that saw, <laughs> <Cut it off. laughs> for sure, and says that if no urgent action is taken against climate change, a collapse of civilization is imminent. I yeah. think that I think most of the credible scientists, mm-hmm. in, and, and even thing. some who are not as credible, have been you know convinced that. We are in a, a, a close to a crisis. I do or die. And we, yeah, yeah and um, the, the world better, you know, snap to attention yeah. or dire consequences. And I'm usually not one to speak with hyperbole, but it seems fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. We caused it. We need to fix it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, worst case scenario, oh, we cleaned up the planet. Oh, boo-hoo. I know, right? <laughs> you know, spent all horrible. this money to clean up the planet. Eh, we're not, we're, we, we lessen the mass extinction. <laughs> happening to the all life on the planet already yeah. this this is a funny story I, I don't know what you guys think about this um, there are some parents in Winnipeg that call for the removal of a sign on a fence there's a little business and they put a sign that says near a school right they're near a school and it mm-hmm. says this is not a drop-off zone children left here will be eaten Were they at least a bakery or something? I don't know the nature of the business, but I would assume something like that. Now, parents apparently, a lot of them are up in arms saying, this is not funny. And I think... No, it would have been funny if they will be sold to the uh, Goblin King. Yeah, or something like that, right? Yeah, It's like, like, calm your tatas there, people. Yeah, I think this is is an an example of people going overboard or something that's obviously ridiculous and meant a bit as, as a taunt. Yeah, I think people, I don't know what, what it is, but I really think people are, are losing their humor gene, oh. you know, and they, getting all upset. Because I, I, I think, haven't there been signs in different places about, um, um, you know, leave your children here and they will be jailed or yeah. the lion will get... I mean, that's been going on or forever. Of, yeah. Everybody's, like, you know, it's funny. I've seen the one, you know, a shot of espresso and a puppy and, and there you yeah, go. And it's like, a shot of espresso and a free puppy. Well, the children will be given a shot of espresso. I so love that one. was it an elementary school or a high school or a middle school? Uh, I think it was know? an elementary school. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming it's in a city? Yes, it's in, yeah. it's in Winnipeg. So it's probably a school that gets like really heavy traffic, so people drop their kids off farther yeah. away so they don't have to wade through yeah. cars. And well, pe- people like complain up. about millennials getting so offended about everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be fair, though, these parents are probably millennials because yeah, millennials are 30, and if they're having elementary school kids, they're probably millennials. Okay, have you guys... Science! Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to our two millennials here. Have you guys ever watched VeggieTales? Um, of course. <laughs> I grew up... I dressed as 
Bob the tomato one year for Halloween. Well, the, <laughs> surprised me you were the tomato. There, there's a student. Catherine was the cucumber. <laughs> there's a student at Cal State and San Marcos suggesting that VeggieTales is racist. I, I was reaching. Go ahead. What I, is there? I, I was really interested why? in that. The, the female author claims the villains in the scenes are, are usually of a darker shade and they often, if not always, have accents. Yes, they do always have accents. While the good characters sound white. Yep, I. I've never, yeah. I've never watched VeggieTales. So I have no idea. I have. It's been too long since I've seen okay, VeggieTales. Okay, but the pirates who do nothing, are, pirates who don't do anything, are amazing. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's traumatizing and, to see and, vegetables. And they do, other. they do what parodies of like everything, <laughs> like Lord of the Rings. They have a Lord of the Rings parody and. Pirates of the Caribbean parody. It's pretty funny, yeah, but I horrible. Know, I don't know if I entirely agree with the conclusions, but when they pointed out, you know, Veggie Tales and some of the other, uh, which I, I can't remember some of the other circumstances where the villain is generally darker and has a, a menacing accent of some kind, they do. But I've never thought, has, have, you, have you ever paired that with being racist? I, I don't know. I don't you know, I'm, I'm having trouble reaching that that conclusion. Well, I mean, this this is obvious. Uh, I knew very little of VeggieTales, and when I yeah. took a, a little look into it, the brief time I looked into it, it's obviously a Christian propaganda thing. Yeah. Well, duh. And, you know, for, 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 for Christian uh, to start spouting that, especially in the United States, if you're darker and you have an accent, if you're a stranger... Chances are you're not a Christian. Chances are you're evil. Can not I, that I'm far not, off the mark. Were, I think they were. The, the, I think the point I made very badly is that in some of the cartoons or stories or whatever, where it's not Christian, they're just generally commercial stories to, that have the a same character that's going to scare a child. That usually there mm-hmm. is some kind of a strange yeah. accent this to, is what I was to that bring child, up. but I don't know. Let's just say I don't know well, whether or not there's you, a racist. It's component. not even just cartoons. You look at no. the larger media. Mm-hmm. Right. Usually the black man is the the bad guy, or the Russian, yeah. or like the German. The villain always has a British accent. And it's always accent. the white man saving the day. Like so, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's just VeggieTales that does this. I think it's a larger trend that mm-hmm. needs to be addressed. Yeah. Same same with how a lot of a lot of media that has gay uh, LGBT characters, the LGBT character is the villain in some way. It's just recently LGBTQ characters are starting to be like the heroes or just sidekicks or anything other than the villain. Mm-hmm. And I think that's similar to how minorities are are portrayed. Minorities are usually the villains. Well, it's, you it can was, almost do a show on that. I yeah. mean, there, it's, 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 the interesting thing is if you go back to movies in the 30s and 40s, like, you know, about Count Dracula and, mm-hmm. and Frankenstein, they were all white. Everybody well, that, was white. That's but because they, had they never strange, had minorities. They had strange <laughs> accents, yes. and they were different, but there wasn't the racist component. So that's because how, black how, people weren't allowed so in. So the interesting <laughs> thing to me is, is there a correlation of some kind that goes from the scary white characters in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and is there a racial component, you know, that took hold because of some bigotry or whatever? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it. I think it needs more... 
either that or it's just blowing something up that doesn't exist and it's just great conversation we'll just need to, mm-hmm. we'll need, yeah. need to look into it deeper for sure yeah. okay yeah. Th- this is this is an interesting story <laughs> I had to put this in there now there are some endangered Hawaiian monk seals Aww. you know and you know everybody Aww. loves seals right <laughs> oh, no, not this. and they're having an issue they keep getting eels and like, the, like an eel stuck up their nose how and scientists are baffled as to how this happens. Are they snorting eels? Well, <laughs> this this at first happened on the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association uh, Facebook page, and they photograph an eel with <laughs> a seal with a big eel sticking out of its yeah. nose, what? and this has happened several several times. It, are they okay? Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, these seals are urged to make better choices. <laughs> no, there's obviously no protocol for this, and uh, they have to capture the seal and then pull the eel, which of course the eel is dead by that time. But they have to pull the eel, which is lodged like several inches into the nose of this seal, and this has happened like half a dozen times Can already. Can the seals not like blow them out of their noses? Well, there's there's a there's a, a hypothesis here because seals don't have hands. Mm-hmm. So essentially, they hunt with their faces, right? Like a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. So they say that, of course, they hunt around coral. So apparently, what seals have to t- a tendency to do is find a hole and blow water in there. Uh. <laughs> try to force out whatever's yeah. in the hole. And these eels, apparently, would trying to escape... <coughs> Shoot themselves <laughs> into their nose at oh first. Oh my gosh. I mean, is there an increase in the eel population? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Oh. But it's just it's just such a funny just, thing to see a seal and he's on the beach and wow. he's got about a foot and a half of eels have, to get out of his nose. Yeah. Do you know if any of the eels have like been harmed from this? Well, they've all died from that. Oh, sorry, not the eels. Oh, my gosh. The, the seals. seals. Seals, sorry. No, I meant to for, say seals. No, not so far, no. <laughs> because they, they have two nostrils, so they can yeah. still breathe with the other one. <laughs> this is just, a, like I said, the, the scientists are just baffled mm-hmm. as to how this I'm is happening. I'm baffled that, you know, most animals, if there is something that is irritating or annoying them, they're able to, you know, have some behavior that they don't take their little front feet and they can't. They can't reach their face. They can't reach. They can't put their face down to their. I, I don't think so because they, they they have very short paws and. But they could put their paw. We'll have to train the yeah, seals. Put your paw down, lift your head up, and uh, whoops, out comes When the... I first saw this article, I thought, this is going to okay, be Okay, that's my new job. I'm going into eel removal. Eel Where removal. Do I eel removal a, specialist. That's, that's, that's right. Right. Now, you get to go to Hawaii for I'm gonna, I've got a new fundraiser. Nancy, know, the no More seals, seals, less eels. And I'm going. I'm getting my T-shirt. I'm going to be in the sea, seal rescue. That's it. Not going <laughs> to be here next week. the seal week. doctor. I, I love it. Yeah, I'm, I've, my calling now. Is, you know. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, there is, this is the time of year where Christmas songs are coming out. And there's a particular song <laughs> that's been making the rounds. And it's called, it's an old song, Baby It's Cold Outside. Ever heard this song? Oh, uh, yes. Time. Yeah. And some uh, radio stations all over the country... Uh, decided to not play this song, especially in light of the Me Too movement. It even went down to the CBC, and when the CBC decided, no, we're not going to play either, uh, then others have followed suit, like, uh, of course, radio stations and stuff like that. Uh, now, I don't know. I mean, as I've, everybody who's seen this show has heard us knows that I'm as feminist 
as they come as far as guys are concerned. Nah, I know more feminist guys. Well, okay. Well, you know, I think, I think, I think we're, we're very pro-feminist on this show and all that. But I think this is too much. Yeah. It is. This is too much. I, I, I actually have a dissenting opinion. Oh, okay. I know. My opinion's actually changed recently. Okay. Because I, I, I think the context of the song, when you look at when it was written, yes. it was written progressive. At the time in the 40s, how it was written... It was written of like a woman wanting to stay over and when she says like what's in this drink it's not talking about getting roofied. Like that's not what it no, is. No, exactly. They, they didn't have roofie back then. But in our context nowadays the song elicits different things in our current society because what's in this drink now does refer to roofies. So I can understand how taking it off the radio just not playing it do you think it's because of that one lyric I think that is a big one also I think I think that's probably actually the biggest one because you also have to think a lot of people listening to Christmas songs have been roofied Mm -hmm. so I can imagine enjoying Christmas and hearing this song that's super triggering and like not just not wanting to have to be subject to that and and I think we have so many other Christmas songs that not playing one Christmas song isn't the end of the world. But I can understand people, people's being like, okay, this is overboard. Like, I yeah. can understand that because when you do look at the the original meaning in the song, it's very woman's choice of, you know, staying over with a man because she wants to. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I get the, when I read this song, and I've got the lyrics here, mm-hmm. uh, Basically, what the image I've got is basically she's just playing hard to get, right? She, this is just a back and forth, the 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 play, the 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 fun they're having, you know, because she really wants to say, but you know, she, oh, I should go, but I, she kind of wants to be seduced into staying, and he he's playing that role. Oh, come on, baby, just stay. But there is that one that one line that says, "The neighbors might think," and then he says, "Baby, it's bad out there. Say, what's in this drink?" No cabs to be out there to to be uh, to be had out there. Say what is, is what's in this drink? I think is that mm. one lyric, okay. in which in today's context yeah, is triggering people. Let's, let's go back. Let's go back because we're talking my era. Yes. Okay. Now. All right. We have when, personal experience when, here, guys. When when that <laughs> you have to realize how conservative people were and good girls, even though they might want to have sex, it was a terrible thing to do because there was no birth control mm-hmm. bills. Mm-hmm. You could get pregnant. You could be called. A slut, and and that was a terrible thing. You were called easy. There were all kinds of societal um, uh, norms yeah. about good girls being good girls, and you didn't want to fall into the easy bad. But there were always in uh, regular society, movies, books, and so forth, the double entendre, the things that were just sort of naughty, because it was always under the surface. People, you know, women may have wanted to have sex. Maybe they they had just as big a drive as the boys did. Boys were there just to seduce girls. It was part of society at that that time. And when, when the song came out, it was sung by the most reputable stand-up conservative, not necessarily conservative, but Bing Crosby and Doris Day, all of the stars who were well-respected, who had no scandals in their life that we knew about. And so it was a fun song 
there was the you know the little naughtiness to it mm -hmm. but that was kind of it wasn't like naughty from porn mm -hmm. stars it was naughty just in a fun way no yeah. one took it as being a rape a, a predisposition to to being raped mm -hmm. and in that context and you had Louis Armstrong and um, Ella Fitzgerald I, I don't think he was with Ella Fitzgerald there was someone else but you had all the top stars and everybody enjoyed it it was a it was a novelty mm -hmm. song and um, at this point if you it, the, the song then of what's in this drink could have been eggnog that was spiked. Yeah. It's not like it's a, dr a rape drug, but it was alcohol in yes. in the drink, you know. And uh, the, the, to, to take that song and put it in today's world and look at it through today's world is, to me, almost the same as censorship of books yes. in libraries. Yes. Yeah. And say, no, this this book, you know, shows racism. Show, but that was the time. Mm -hmm. So you can look at it in the context and say, well, this is how people handle things back then. Mm -hmm. And it's a cultural reference, a context But I'm, I'm just going to jump in here because you were talking about but, how it's like similar to a book, but books you have to go to and you have to read yeah. them. Songs on the radio... You don't choose what song comes well, okay, on. Well, okay, let, let, no, let but me. I'm saying it's the same type of censorship. Yes. It's saying, you know, this was a song from the, the 50s or 60s, well, but the thing and is, it, was, it was bad it. for the Me Too movement, so we're just going to get rid of the, it. The thing that is, though, to me you is can censorship. still go listen to it. If you like the song, you can yeah. go to Spotify, YouTube. There, there are still radio stations that play it. Like, it's just some radio stations are like, okay, we're going to choose other songs. Yeah. The Christmas songs that we like more. But I think, I, I think, you know, when, when, you, when the alt-right comes in and says, this is the left going crazy and overboard, I, they kind of have a point there. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, I happened to catch the old Karate Kid. Remember that movie from the I 80s? have the, never seen it, well, Okay, So I'm watching this the, the old movie, the, the Karate Kid, which is, makes you feel old because the Karate Kid, this, this year is like 56. So mm -hmm. <laughs> makes you feel old. Uh, and I'm watching this movie, and... But I'm watching it through today's eyes. Yeah. And I'm thinking this movie would not pass muster. Yeah, a lot it's a of very, stuff very innocent movie. Mm -hmm. And there's this one point, you know, where he's he's got the his girlfriend with the big poofy hair of the '80s and all that, and he says, "Oh, why don't you drive? Oh, you're gonna let me drive? Well, right there." And then he starts, quote unquote, mansplaining to him to her, you know, how to pop in the clutch and stuff like that. And I think, and that, that was my first thought. And I think, are we gonna start? How far do we go with this? You know, do we start banning these movies from the 80s too because, you know, they don't really adhere to what our values are today? Uh, this, this is the same thing as the song, right? Like you said, you didn't go to the book. You have to go to the book, but this, this is a movie playing on TV. Do we, do we stop this movie from the 80s because it doesn't really adhere to our values today I also? You have to be able to at some well, point to the understand is, the context. If, the if, a, if a channel decided they weren't going to play that for those reasons... You could understand that. Yeah, I, but I think... I, I, but but the song hasn't been banned full outright. It's just some no. stations are like, you know what? In our current society, this song doesn't have the same reception. So we're just not going to play it. Mm -hmm. Because let's, let's listen to White Winter Hymnal, because it's amazing. Or like White Christmas, or like other songs that are just don't have the same... Same ability to 
kind of make people uncomfortable. But is it is it is it that far away from saying you know don't want to use the slippery slope argument, but you know he knows when you are sleeping. You don't no, exactly. I was literally about to bring up you know, that. Yeah, because it, I would be happy if that song never played again. Well, you, I yeah, hate but, that song <laughs> because it's creepy. Every time I hear it, I'm like, oh my god, Sanchez is the creepiest thing on this planet. Well, yeah, but I mean, how far are we from there if we're gonna start? banning songs for the but, context but of, if a radio station different. decided not to play that song because like say say one of the execs was like molested as a child and there you know what i just don't want that song on the radio we're not gonna play it because of those lyrics and they make me uncomfortable so i'm making a decision not to play it if they had a reason for it i would be like okay you have a reason i mean i can see you know, you know we're sensitive people we can understand both mm-hmm. sides you know everything can be a trigger to some people and everything can be no mm-hmm. trigger mm-hmm. To, to other people but i i think we're just in a transition period where there's just a lot of yeah. um yeah. Um, conversation and 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 society is moving, you know, toward yeah. giving women, you know, um, more more power and and in, in deciding and and more uh, equality. So anything that that feels as though it sets women back and triggers, mm-hmm. you know, against the, the the Me Too movement, I, I can understand mm-hmm. it. I, I'm I'm a little conflicted about yeah. it, but I, it, to me, it's it's kind of over I, the top more. I think if it was like China style, like scrubbing it from the internet, like erasing it from history, you know. then yeah, that would be so far across the line, unbelievably yeah. not okay. But this is just radio stations deciding they don't want this on their playlists. Yeah. People I'd... can still listen to it. They can still enjoy it. And people who don't want to listen to it don't have to. No, I, I, I agree. I agree with that. But I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, is this decision that the radio station really reflecting how the population feels? I think for a lot of people, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I don't. I, I don't know sure the I answer. I don't know the answer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a complicated. And the thing answer. is, I don't think it has to necessarily reflect reflect the greater population because it's they're making a decision mm. on their playlist. No, like no, there are some songs that I love that I wish would be played so much more, but because I'm weird and love indie music, it doesn't get played on pop stations. No, that, and that's, that's perfectly fair. That's a, that's a business decision, and we'll have to leave it at that for mm-hmm. now, I guess. And uh, if you, a third listener, feel different about this, let us know. Yeah. Let at valleyatoutlook.com. Yeah. But it, it definitely is a nuanced discussion and mm-hmm. isn't black and white. Absolutely. It sure has a catchy tune, though. It does. <laughs> it's never been my favorite one, though. I, yeah. The I know, first um, time I listened to it, I can actually enjoy it. Enjoyed it was on Glee because Kurt's amazing. <laughs> I know. I believe Lady Gaga just recently did it, <gasps> and that was the moment I figured out my family was super homophobic because they actually um, I forgot who she sang <gasps> it with, but they switched the roles. No, oh. it was two God. Oh, sorry, Lady Gaga. Sorry, I'm so in my own conversation. I right just now. watched it oh. this morning. I think. <laughs> And it was Lady Gaga, and I forget who she sang it with, but they actually switched roles, See, and she awesome. was doing it in the role of like the, the man. Okay. And it was doing like, like it's cold outside. Stay with me. Exactly, and it was that's awesome. See, I like that kind of thing. That's cool. All right, my dear Nancy, you got a top ten for us? Oh, that's, I don't know whether I want to stop that discussion or not. Oh, we could. Go. <laughs> we have to. Hey, 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 we hey audience, on that one. Anyway, if okay. you want us to dive into this kind of discussion more. Email us yeah, or absolutely. talk to absolutely. us on Facebook because yeah, we're absolutely. feeling lonely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. On our on our December theme of Canada's gifts to the world. Yay. 
Um, this is kind of a fun one. I think that I, I always try to do the fun ones. Anyway, this is, I'm going to do about 15 of them. Ooh, um, so much for top 10. Inventions, inventions <laughs> that Canada inventions. gave the world. <gasps> okay, oh, I'm, I'm so I'm excited. Gonna 16. I'm going to do 16 because they're quick. Okay, the 16th of what Canada gave. Do you realize that Canada gave the world standard time? Wait, seriously? Wait, seriously. That's true. There was an engineer. We invented time? There was an engineer. Time. Who's, that's right. Whose name was Sanford Fleming. And he brought standard time to the U.S. and Canadian railways in 1883. Although and then the time zones became law in 1918. And they were accepted worldwide in 1929. As long as we Americans, didn't invent daylight savings. Amer- Americans <laughs> dispute that saying the first one to have the idea that was actually Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, that's stupid. But, you know, uh, he might have thought about it. He might even maybe first to think about it, but he was not the first one to implement it for sure. And he didn't get the credit. No. Okay, number 15. This is a fun one. The paint roller. Seriously? Uh, the paint roller. Us being lazy. A <laughs> Canadian <laughs> named Norman Brakey invented it in 1940, but an American inventor named Richard Adams tweaked the design and filed the first patent. Ah. Nice. Ah, that's how that went. Mm-hmm. Okay, number 14, the baggage tag. Seriously? Ooh, yeah, talk about important. And, it's because he's like, a I'm guy. Canadian, guys. Canadians have a lot of baggage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of baggage. John Michael Lyons of New Brunswick changed travel when he invented the first baggage tag. When do you think he invented it? Oh, hmm. okay, so New Brunswick was part of Canada at this time? New, yeah, New Brunswick. Okay, so that narrows it down. <laughs> 1882. Ooh, yeah. Good job, dude. The revolutionary document contained information about the bag's point of departure, destination, and owner. It was really practical, mm-hmm. you know, so people didn't lose their, their baggage. And number 13, this is really fun, Green Currency Inc. Mm, yes. In 1862. <laughs> what's amazing the is The American how, Inc. was a Canadian venture for the yeah. currency. But what's amazing to me when I went through this is how far back mm. these inventions go. 1862. And wow. then we saw it and we're like, gross. Thomas Sherry Hunt <laughs> invented the ink that makes U.S. bills green. Exactly. We don't, we don't use it today. We, we don't even use it for our currency. Money. Yeah. Well, we do now. Yeah. And our color. Well, we don't use that green, though. No, we have color. We... Have fun in our lives. Okay, here we go. This is this is a natural. The foghorn. Ah. A fellow named Robert Foolis invented a steam-powered foghorn, 1854, but died penniless because he didn't have the patent. Ah, yeah, always patent yeah, stuff. The patents. Mm-hmm. Number number eleven. Instant replay. <gasps> CBC television. Yes. Used a kinescope, um, the guy named, who invented it was George Retzloff, and he used a kinescope when he created the first ever instant replay, 1955. Good job, oh. dude. And it was during a broadcast of what else? Hockey, Hockey night. Well, of course. Yeah. Number 10, insulin. I think we're all yes. pretty much yeah. insulin. We have Frederick Banting, 1922. Number nine, the walkie talkie. <laughs> Really? It's because we live so far away from everyone else. It's like (laughs) your neighbor is three miles away. Yeah, he called it the packs. Talk to me. Yeah, probably. Don Hings called it the pack set in 1937 when Canada declared war on Germany. And then two years later, he went to Ottawa to redevelop the device for military use. Now they're great, except when the person doesn't respond. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) You just put on ignore. 
<laughs> Number eight, Macintosh apples. I didn't really start. Really? Yeah. really? Macintosh apples. We invented apple. an apple? <laughs> In 1811, John Macintosh, there you go, began getting um, grafting a wild apple tree at his South Dundas farm, and people began enjoying it in 1835. Can, can, I, can I make a confession, though? When you first said that, I'm like, what kind of what kind of computer is that? Oh my god! <laughs> the comments they of yeah. the comments of Christina, <laughs> not necessarily those of Lester Valley subsidiaries. Numbers, moving right, moving moving rapidly right along. <laughs> Number seven, IMAX. Filmmakers Graham yes. yes. Ferguson, Roman Kreuter, and Robert Kerr, and engineer Robert Shaw founded IMAX 1967. Which is they the only the real first 3D IMAX <laughs> film. In Has everyone seen IMAX movies? Oh, yes. Yeah. Wait, you've yeah. never been to Science World and seen an IMAX? Okay, yeah, I've seen that. Oh, yeah, I've not. Yeah, I've yeah. Seen, okay, I yeah. haven't seen, like, an actor. No. Oh, we should go see Avengers 4 in IMAX. Tina, reel it in. Or you're <laughs> going to get muted. I'm IMAX so is the actually only real 3D because there are actually two cameras filming, filming oh. and overlapping. It's the real yeah. 3D as compared to the other process, which is actually digitally done. The egg carton. The ink Believe cartridge. it or not, in really? uh, 1911, they used like an ink the paper, the egg carton. Oh, the I egg carton. Sorry, egg I'm sorry, her ink yeah, cartridge. Like, yeah. you know, they, they were fooling around with paper and yeah. and developed the wow. egg Realized you could fit around an egg. Number five. This is good, of course, Basketball. for Canada. The rotary snowplow. Where else? Necessity <laughs> 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 this breeds invention. <laughs> yeah. It, the fun thing about this is that it was invented by a Toronto dentist, and he. <laughs> first thought of the idea to clean up train tracks and then the snowmobile and snowblower also came after that um, but the zamboni ice resurfacer <gasps> nah california really you'd think that well the zamboni that's because would be up here, we can nah. just go on our natural ice outside california they need to make their own yeah exactly uh, number four the odometer Really? Road trips were never the same after 1854, when Nova Scotia inventor Mac, uh, Samuel McKean created a device that measured the distance with every revolution of a carriage wheel. Though everyone from um, uh, um, Ben Franklin mm. is also working on it, it just so happened that he Samuel was just McKean one, yeah. in Nova Scotia got there, got there first. A fun game. Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. Three. I am so bad at this game. <laughs> really? Unless it's Harry Potter. There you go. Or science. 1979, or Scott nerd. Abbott, a Montreal sports editor, and Chris Haney, a photo editor, um, when they couldn't find all their, their Scrabble tiles, decided to do something else, and they invented Trivial Pursuit. It, it so, is such wait, a fun game, though. They couldn't find their Scrabble tiles, so they made another game called Trivial Pursuit. They did. These guys had way too much time. Necessity in breeds invention. What did yeah. I say? Yeah, they, it was just one. You know, it was those, just one of those fun things that came those, spontaneously those while they were playing where Scrabble. Where you snowed into your cabin. Okay, okay yeah. ladies, ladies. Here's this is one for us. The Wonder Bra. Nice. The the, the um, most popular push-up bra ever. And it was invented by a Montreal. Um, company called Lady Corset Company, and they first in- licensed the trademark Wonderbra in 1939, but then renamed the company Wonderbra in 1961. Don't you so, wish instead of these little hooks in the back, they would have like Velcro, make it easier no. to? That would be so scratchy and uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. 
Imagine Velcro constantly rubbing up against your back. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm a man. So I'm just thinking about ease of removal. That's all I'm thinking about. Also, it's not hard. Also, it's more not likely open. to come undone. Ugh. Like randomly. <laughs> no. So the that number would be one bad. invention is one you'll never think of. A basketball. Never, never in a million years will you think of this as being a Canadian. Oh, let me invention. guess. Let me guess. So let me I'm going to tell you. Um, peanut butter. I wasn't going to that. Peanut butter. A Montreal pharmacist named Marcellus Gilmore Edson. Love, don't you love that name? Yeah. It's a good name. Marcellus Gilmore Edson envisioned his nutty ointment-like product patented in 1884 Wait a as a food option for people who couldn't chew. Ugh. What's the your favorite is- thing to put peanut butter on? And Chocolate. he was a pharmacist, so he just... Mine's waffles. Wasn't wasn't there? Hold on, I forget the name of the fellow, but I always heard for the longest time that it was one of the uh, first black American inventions was peanut butter. Fake news. Fake news, really? <laughs> Real wow. thing. No, no, it was the peanut. It was the development of the peanut itself and how oh, okay. how to grow it in the South. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes yeah, sense. I, I could remember his name if I yeah, had. Yeah, I couldn't remember. I can't remember his name either. But um, yeah, it was it was a black man that developed yeah, yeah. the peanut peanut and growing it and making it commercially okay. responsible. I'll, I'll probably think of it at two o'clock this morning. <laughs> but, that's true. but that that was kind of amazing yeah. to me the peanut butter because you'd think because the peanut was you know a, a southern um, um, commercial product mm-hmm. and that it would have turned into peanut butter, but. Can't stand. We just thought, butter. how can we make sorry, it did better? Did you say you can't stand no. peanut butter? No, I can't. Now, whether he patented it in the, 1884 and someone else patented it, I, I don't know. I'll have to look up yeah. a little bit. The more. only way you can eat peanut butter is like if it's in the yeah. chocolate bar. That's about it. Really? Oh, yeah. like that oh is just, I ah, love peanut butter. Yeah. When I was younger, I would just take a spoon and just eat spoonfuls of peanut butter. George bread. Washington Carver. <laughs> oh, that's it. Was the guy that did yeah. the peanut. Yeah. I know what I did. Is I'll stick it in a little bowl and I'll stick it in the microwave and then I'll melt it and I'll pour it over ice cream. Oh God! That sounds. You guys all pregnant amazing. or something? What's wrong with you guys? It's delicious. I'll do it in the middle of winter too. It's delicious. okay, but you're crazy. Okay. Shut up. Never. Canadian. All right, my dear Kirsten, it's time for another brilliant moment. Yes, it is. Brought to you by religion. Woo-hoo. <laughs> all right, we have found it, guys. The least useful degree anyone could possibly get uh, Ooh, chiropractic the least, no no the least no. useful degree Scientology uh, demonology and ghosts the online only Luter Wycliffe school of eschatology is now <laughs> offering a doctorate in end times prophecy Whoa. okay but that would be kind of fun End times prophecy? You a- can have a doctorate in end times prophecy. AKA the apocalypse degree. That sounds amazing. You know, the worst part is you could probably ask these students when they think they'll complete their doctorate. They can't tell you. <laughs> but they can tell you about the end times though. Yeah. <laughs> no seminary in the world offers the doctor of eschatology except Luther Wycliffe Theology- Theological Seminary. We are it. We have made history with this degree program, and now it is offered exclusively by us. This degree program is extremely comprehensive and rigorous, but worth every minute of study. Where so, is this? America, obviously. It's online. But no, yeah, where are they like probably. Based? So so we know right now, as soon as that program, as long as that program runs, 
the end of the world's not happening. Well, exactly, because they know when the world's going to end. So, <laughs> see if they say they offer their course till twenty twenty, then we yeah. know. <laughs> Boy, but before you spend the two thousand two hundred and forty dollars it costs for no. this degree, consider the following. If the world ends, your degree will be useless. <laughs> Unless if, you're Christian and you're in heaven. If the world does not end, your degree will be useless. Oh my god. <laughs> what the hell does a doctoral thesis look like in this program, considering the entire field is about ev- evidence-free speculation? Ugh. The school has no accreditation from a credible source. Oh, of course not. Will your course credits transfer anywhere else? No. The school says <laughs> that's quite unpredictable. Oh my god. I'd like to transfer my credit into the from end of the world. Into psychology. <laughs> oh. Feel safe to assume that the thesis will have to be written in all caps. Oh my gosh. It totally would. You, you have to have so many likes on Facebook for it to pass. Oh my gosh, that's totally what they do. The testimonials on the school's website consist of one guy, Peter Packer. What? Who Peter has Packer? no picture and says the same vague thing every time you scroll through the list. Wow, that's... Credible. Credible. <laughs> Sounds like Peter Parker from Spider-Man. I know. Oh, I love Peter Parker. There's nothing you'll get from a doctorate in this in this subject that you won't get by reading a Left Behind book and buying a bucket of whatever glop Jim Baker is selling. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. The only thing more embarrassing than getting this degree would be somehow failing out of the program after paying for it. <laughs> oh, do you imagine? Has anyone actually like gone into it? I don't know. Well, obviously Peter Packer has. <laughs> obviously, whoever this mysterious Peter Packer is, we must get in touch with him. Yes. <laughs> Peter Packer, if you're listening, contact us. Yes, Peter Packer. <laughs> Picked a pepper. <laughs> Picked a pack of pickled so, peppers. So I don't peppers. do tongue twisters. So I'm just trying to think, how do you do a thesis for this? <laughs> so you, I'm sure they're very you, creative. All three of us are in that course, okay? Because we just lost our mind Oh, there. you're right about the blood mints. Okay, but I mean, so you'll predict that the end of the world is in three three years, and you'll predict yeah. it's a year and a half. No, it's going to be 77 years. Oh, 77. Or no, 88, because okay. 88 is a good number. Fine, you predict 88 years, and 42. I predict five years from now, and you predict two months from now. How do you determine which one of us is right on this? Build a time machine. Oh, there we go. TARDIS. Yeah! <laughs> oh, the world of Christianity is too fun. It yes. is. Until you, like, think about how many kids they kill. Yeah. Then it's not so fun. You just brought us down a level here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep us laughing, Kristen. Keep going. Well, this one spoke to me personally. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> it's Supernatural is the completely serious weekly Christian show hosted by Sid Roth that features testimonies from people who have personally experienced God. Recently, John Kilpatrick was a guest on the show. He might be best known um, for speaking in tongues in church in order to defeat witchcraft. To defeat Uh, witchcraft? Yeah. It went viral because of how absurd it was. (laughs) Well... I guess he wants something even more embarrassing to top his Google results, since he told Roth about a time he watched a real live miracle. He saw a Vietnam veteran's missing hand grow back during a revival. I think he might have taken drugs. Yeah. I think so. Or he's lying. One of those. 
The story is told via an incredible reenactment. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I want to watch it. I can show it to you later. He was a Vietnam veteran, and they threw a grenade in on him. And he took that grenade and threw it out of the tent. And when he did, it exploded midair, but it blew part of his hand off. It blew all the meat off, and he had a crippled hand. Yeah, he would have killed him too at that rage. His hand was growing back in that presence of God. The audience applauds. And then, maybe the most shocking part about the entire exchange, Sid Roth moved on to a different topic. Not a single follow-up question. Oh my gosh. Hey, way to make it credible. That hand just grew back. All right, moving on. (laughs) Nothing else to see here, people. All right, let's move on. And I would say the reenactment that they did, oh man, it's so funny. (laughs) It's like a bad movie level of special effects for this hand growing back. Oh my god. They used sock puppets, I bet. (laughs) It would have been better if they used sock puppets. (laughs) Oh. This is this is why this is why faith healers never work in hospitals. Yeah, and or that's why is. that's why a disease that apparently healed are always something that you can't see, or that like have spontaneous remission as part of that daily happenstance. Yeah, I, I think God should really try to concentrate on the amputees. He's really or been neglecting the kids them. with leukemia. Like, just cure them all. Yeah. Even Why Jesus, even Jesus wasn't all that great because, after all, you know, he was just cleaning one leper. Exactly. He didn't kill leprosy. You know, he healed one blind he guy. Just he could have just gone like... cure blindness. He could have taken a dandelion and be like, this is leprosy and yeah. gone. Yeah. No, no, they can't do that. No. It always has you, to be... You'd think with him being all powerful, he could, you know, get rid of disease. Yeah. Horrible you'd, disease. You'd at, think. At the very least, you can make a world that is clearly designed for two-handed people a little easier for one-handed people. Exactly. At the very least. Thank you very much. Or, you know, make it funny, you know. Grow a tentacle instead. Exactly. Yeah. That would be useful. Yeah. Think of all the tentacle porn you can do with this after that. <laughs> <laughs> Christian tentacle porn. New category altogether. Oh my gosh, you ruined it. <laughs> I was not thinking Christian until you said that, and it just suddenly went PG, and it made me sad. <laughs> I was thinking, like, how, how would Christians do that? It would be like shaking hands. I'm like, no. <laughs> and washing them. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. All right. We're done. Thank you so much, ladies. Uh, so let's take a pause, and when we come back, we'll be talking to author James Fordor yeah. about he who must not be named. Baltimore. No. Oh, I should. I the should other correct. one. I, I said it wrong. The real Baltimore. Ho- the real the T horror. is not pronounced because it's French. The real Baltimore. horror. The real horror. William Donald Lane. Trump. Well, okay, that's close, <laughs> but just as bad. William Lane Craig. I don't think he's just as bad. <laughs> Your opinion doesn't count here. So, stay stay with us. Do you know where Saskatchewan is? Probably not. It's in Canada. If you do, you might know a city named Regina. In Regina, there's a studio. And in that studio, there are, at least once a month, a bunch of skeptical atheist geeks and goofballs who get together to do a podcast. We are the Brainstorm Crew, and we're trying to help spread a bit of reason and critical thinking while still having fun. Never taking things too seriously, but still not accepting everything we're told, we go through different topics, exploring them in depth, and often disagreeing. We try to stick to provable facts, and we never trust a myth. 
That's why we say we're woo-free since 2013. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker under Brainstorm. Or check out our website, brainstormblog.net. I can't promise you'll always agree with us, but I can promise you'll have fun listening to us. What happens when you're an atheist living inside the Canadian Bible Belt? If you're like me, you gather some friends and take to the airwaves. So I invite you to take a left to the valley and find out where you stand in this world. Follow us on iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, Stitcher, Blog Talk, or leftofthevalley.com. Atheists, skeptics, and humanist radio, no God required. online is an author James Fodor and uh, he also studies physics and neurobiology he's a snappy dresser and snazzy dancer James thank you so much for joining us at Left of the Valley thanks it's a pleasure to be here and you say that now well wait till five minutes in there you might regret your choices here <laughs> <laughs> and uh, salutations from Canada you're all the way down there on the other side of the world we're actually communicating through time and space because he's in Australia to be fair to him, we're down there. Yeah, he, he's actually communicating back in time through us right now. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yep. That's how good of a guess we have. We're just all over the place all the time. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, there, we have no boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> James, maybe, maybe for our listeners, maybe you'd be so kind to give us a quick bio as to who James Fodor is. Uh, sure. Well, I'm... Uh, I've studied a number of things. Uh, so I live in Melbourne, Australia, and I've been a student at the University of Melbourne for well, quite a while now. Um, I've studied, uh, I think, as you mentioned, physics, and uh, also um, I have a degree in in biology. And um, I guess relevant for for this discussion, I grew up as a Mormon, uh, so the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I, I uh, left that when I was about twenty years old, and um, but um, which is a whole story in itself. Mm-hmm. But uh, that left me with a uh, continuing interest in religion and questions about you know philosophy and um, how to tell what is true, sort of thing. And uh, when I at, at university, I came into contact with one of the, the Christian groups there and started to have discussions with, with them about what they believed and uh, why they believed it. And uh, over the years, I came into um, contact with or knowledge of um, the whole field of sort of Christian apologetics. This was very interesting to me because uh, as a Mormon, I hadn't really been exposed to this sort of approach to uh, faith before, or sort of giving reasons for faith. It's um, there are Mormon apologists, but it's just it's kind of a bit different in in, in terms of how it works, and um, particularly one of the uh, one of the main figures that I came across is well, William Lane Craig, and uh, I was particularly interested in his work and uh, sort of started reading a lot about that and having conversations with people. So um, I, I 
guess we'll, we'll sort of get into that about uh, my decision to write the book. But yeah, that, that's sort of how I um, became interested in, uh, in, in his work. Mm-hmm. So we're actually going to be talking about your, your book about uh, called Unreasonable Faith and He Who Must Not Be Mentioned, Lenny Craig. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but first of all, the, the first two questions that popped in my mind right there, right away, and I got to ask is, is there a lot of Mormons in Australia? One. And two... I have to. I, it's not Melbourne. It's Melbourne, right? I have to say it right because there's a way of saying that that, that word, that city, and most of us don't do it right. So please repeat <laughs> that name for our audience, if you'd be so kind. Uh, right. Well, I don't know. People around here would say it Melbourne. Melbourne, uh, not Mel- yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> Although it's spelled like Melbourne, say, but, but it's, I don't it's know Melbourne. If that make it right. But, That's right. Um, do it right, people. That's important. <laughs> Um, sorry, what was your other question? Oh, the number of is there a lot of Mormons in Australia? Mormons in Australia, yeah. Some people people have asked this of me occasionally. There, there's something like a hundred thousand, a bit more. Oh, um, wow! Because we don't here in Canada, we don't see a lot of Mormons. No, we have we Mennonites. Actually, yeah, well, we have a lot of <laughs> we have Jehovah's Witnesses and all these kinds, but uh, Mormons is you know we see them once in a while, but that's about it. You know, the, the, I always wave at them. <laughs> you can always recognize them with their little short sleeve shirt. They never tie. come to my door. Yeah, but you scare people away, do No, but literally, I've, I've driven by them and be like, You've driven we into the them. Mormons. And our window so was sad. down and they heard it and they left. Yes. Yeah. You haven't driven funny. by them, you've driven into them. There's no. a difference. <laughs> <laughs> She's wanted for murder in three counties already. Uh, <laughs> So James, so give us the genesis on your book there, Unreasonable Faith. And uh, this is a big topic because William Lane Craig, let's face it, he's a superstar as far as Christians are concerned. He is the man. And you decide to <laughs> tackle the bull head on. So by all means, my friend, explain to this how you came to this decision. Right. Well, um, as I said, I became sort of exposed to Christian apologetics or at least sort of evangelical apologetics. I suppose there are mm-hmm. different types. But anyways, um, and William Lane Craig is, as you said, very prominent in that sort of sphere, especially because of his many um, uh, online debates and um, yeah, well, online sort of podcast debates, mm-hmm. which I many of which I viewed and, and listened to, and uh, of course he has a reputation well deserved, I would say, for um, being very uh, competent in these uh, formats, and I think he generally wins his debates um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so that that you know that naturally attracted my attention, and um, particularly the way he presents his arguments as quite well most of the time. Um, as quite sort of logically constructed with specific premises and uh, conclusions and so on. That, that sort of appealed to my way of thinking. And um, I think also sort of naturally um, naturally begs a sort of direct response. Um, so that's one of the reasons I was interested in Craig because he's so prominent and because of the way he, he presents his arguments. Um, the other reason I think is because when I was sort of looking into his, his arguments, uh, Naturally, of course, I was also looking into well, you know, what have people said in in response? Um, I guess I should have said, um, maybe I just sort of took this for granted, but it's not obvious. So when I ceased being a Mormon, I started to think of myself as an atheist because I lost my faith in God, right? So mm-hmm. that I, that's what I consider myself to be, um, and that's the approach I was sort of coming at the um, Craig's arguments, uh, you know, as a non-believer. Um, I am 
like to think of myself as sort of open-minded, so I was sort of willing to be convinced by his, his arguments if, you know, they were persuasive, if they were good arguments. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to hear, well, you know, what's what's the, what's the counter argument? What's the other side to it? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in anything, there's always two sides to it. So I wanted to sort of uh, give his arguments a, a fair analysis, the, the sort of the pro and the con. Um, anyway, so I went looking online for uh, responses to Craig or for uh, more on his some of his particular arguments. And of course, there were some things that people had written, um, both in more sort of popular pieces, uh, blogs and other, and other pieces on websites, and also more um, technical sort of scholarly uh, journal articles and so forth and um, many of these were quite interesting but what I sort of realized uh, over time sort of reading about this is that no one had really done a systematic response to Craig's mm-hmm. um, apologetic as a whole they just responded to sort of bits and pieces um, and I, I sort of thought that this was important because I sort of realized that a number of his arguments have kind of uh, connections or they relate to each other in various sometimes subtle ways maybe we can talk more about that uh, in a little bit um, but anyway so I was sort of a bit unsatisfied with what I found with respect to the materials that existed um, responding to Craig um, because yeah they were so sort of patchy and haphazard and I, I felt that there were particular things that they just didn't address um, and uh, I don't know sort of in my in my hubris or vanity or whatever you want to call it I just decided well you know I maybe I'll 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 write the book that doesn't exist and sort of try to respond systematically to this. So, um, yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> now, now, William Lean Craig is known for having some pretty strong arguments and a couple of them in particular. And I kind of want I want you to be able to explain to us for some of us that don't necessarily have know the argument and what your response to the argument was. He's known for using the Kalam cosmological argument and also mm-hmm. the fine tuning argument yeah right so so maybe if, if you'd be so kind maybe you'll give us a brief lesson for those of us that are too dumb like myself to understand <laughs> what they fully are and what your answer in your book was to, to your response to uh to william Lane craig was yeah right so the Kalam cosmological argument is uh, the most famous of craig's arguments and rightly so because he he didn't exactly invent the argument. It sort of developed from the work of a number of, sort of medieval uh, Islamic theologians, which is where it gets its name from. But um, he popularized, reformulated, and then popularized the argument um, in a book published, I think it was in, in the late 70s. Um, and that's got quite a lot of discussion in the in the philosophical literature. So that's one of the reasons that Craig has become prominent is because of his, um, yeah, his, his uh, use of this argument. Um, so the way Craig presents the argument is uh, in terms of uh, a fairly simple syllogism with two premises and a conclusion. So the first premise is the universe began to exist, and the second premise is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Mm-hmm. The conclusion of that is the universe has a cause or mm-hmm. had a cause. Um, so that I mean that's a, a valid argument. The, the question is whether you agree with the premises. Yeah. Um, and note that this conclusion, and this is where people um, – already run into trouble when they're responding to this because this conclusion doesn't say anything about the existence of God, mm-hmm. right? It just says the universe has a cause. Um, in, in, his, in the way he presents this, he then gives sort of further reasons as to why this cause that he's identified, the cause of the universe, must be a personal creator or, or God. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah, I sort of identify that and talk about what I call the extended Kalam cosmological argument. Mm -hmm. This is not a term that Craig uses. It's just a term that I use so that I can address sort of all of the issues. Um, 
Um, so adding a premise, if the universe had a cause, the cause was a personal creator. And then you get to the conclusion that, uh, you know, God exists or a personal creator, God exists. Um, so anyways, um, so this is intended to be an argument for a creator God, right? And um, one of the biggest issues with the Kalam, and it's what you'll encounter as sort of the first issue that I discuss if you if you read my book, is that it relies on a particular philosophy of time. Um, this is called the tensed theory of time. Now, this is quite interesting because when Craig originally formulated the Kalam cosmological argument, he and he's he's um, he said this explicitly. I, I quote him in my book um, on this. He says explicitly he didn't really realize. Uh, about the disputes in philosophy of time. He maybe sort of had a vague idea about it, but he didn't really think it was very important. Um, only subsequently did he realize, and sort of it was made, uh, other people in responding to the argument made it clear to him that his argument really is completely dependent on just one view about the philosophy of time. So he he's subsequently, he sort of then went went, well, went back and wrote, wrote four big fat books on the philosophy of time to defend the tense theory of time um, which which his argument depends on. So um, this this analysis of the tense theory of time is then what I start the the book discussing because Craig needs the tense theory of time for the Kalam to work and and then only when he has that then then you can start mm-hmm. getting into the the premises. So do you, do you want me to talk a little bit about the the tense theory of time? Yes, I was about to ask exactly that. What exactly is the tense? Because I, I thought it, I was I thought you were going to say linear, but no, you're using a different term here. So please explain that to me. Yeah, right. So I just wanted to set up as to why it matters, because most people haven't, don't know really anything about philosophy of time. Even a lot of philosophers don't know much mm-hmm. about the philosophy of time. Uh, it's a bit esoteric, right? So um, this is an in- example of, of when I think it's important to sort of tie Craig's arguments together, because a lot of people don't even sort of realize that there's this whole issue um, about the Kalam that he needs to deal with first. But anyways, so the um, there are two main views in philosophy of time. As always in philosophy, there's various you know, hybrids and whatever, but at least two main views, the tensed and the tense-less theory of time, right? Um, now, a lot, a lot of people have trouble understanding these, so let me try to explain it in a way that makes some sense. So the, the tense theory of time, particularly the version called presentism that um, uh, that uh, Craig advocates, that's like a version of the tense theory, but maybe I'll just talk about presentism to make things simpler, mm-hmm. and it's got a good name. So, presentism says that only the present exists. So, the past doesn't exist and the future doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Um, and this is understood in a fairly sort of um, robust sense, like only the only the now, the present moment, is part of, you know, reality. Yeah. Um, the past used to exist, but it doesn't exist anymore, and the future doesn't exist, but it will exist, right? And then we sort of um, future moments come into existence and then the present moment ceases to exist and, and um, becomes past so that it no longer exists, right? So that's one way of thinking about how time works. You have this um, sort of succession of moments coming into and going out of existence. Now, um, and that's what Craig believes, the, the pr- uh, presentism. Uh, the main challenger to this is what's called the tenseless, tenseless theory of time. Mm-hmm. Now, it says that time exists as kind of a dimension, um, and all of time exists sort of well, at once isn't the right word, but, but it all exists. There's, there's the past and then there's the present and there's the future and it all exists as a kind of a, well, kind of a line, like dimension. Think of it as a sort of a road. You're looking forward into the future, right? Now, as temporal beings, we only exist at one moment in time, right? We don't exist at all moments in time simultaneously. Um, so we exist in a particular moment in time, which we call the present, but the past still exists. It's just sort of, 
you know, back there. And the future exists as well. It's just sort of, you know, out there. It, it's um, forward in time relative to us. So the tense less theory of time talks about events being um, earlier than and later than other events. So you can think of it as, as like a spatial dimension where you have events that exist, um, uh, you know, on sort of on one side of it and then on the other side of it. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we talk about that as earlier than or later than events. Now, the, the critical difference between the tensed and the tense less theories of time is about whether the past and the future are part of reality, like they're part of the things that exist. Under presentism, uh, which is what Craig says, they're not. Only the present exists, whereas mm-hmm. under the tenseless theory, it all exists. We, we just only experience part of it mm-hmm. at, at you know, where we exist in, in time. Does that make some degree of sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, it's it's a bit abstract, and there's a you know a bit more to it, obviously. But that's the basic idea. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the reason this is important is because remember Craig's first premise is that the universe began to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, like, what does that actually mean if you think about it? Well, what he said he means by it basically is that is the presentism idea that the the universe sort of came into being at one moment in time and didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Well. There was no moment in time when it didn't exist because time came into being with the universe. So the language gets a bit tricky, but yeah. basically the universe just came into being and then you know, sort of started ticking over. Now, under te- the, this is the critical thing to understand. Under the tenseless theory of time, nothing really begins to exist in that way. Everything sort of already exists. It's just that things exist earlier than or later than other things. Yeah. So the way that you would say it under the tenseless theory of time is just that the universe is um, finite in the earlier than direction. So if you could imagine like somehow traveling backward in time along the, the uh, temporal dimension, you'd, you'd sort of – you'd go earlier and earlier and earlier and then you'd hit a, a wall, like uh, speaking as an analogy. Obviously, there's no actual wall yeah. there. But the point is there's just there's – a, there's a limit to how early you can go and that's it. There's no sense in which that – began to exist or that later moments sort of started to exist uh, at a different moment in time. Everything just exists, temporally speaking. It's just there's a limit to how early you can go. It's just a different way of thinking about time. Um, So the critical thing there to understand is that Craig's premise the universe began to exist doesn't even make sense under a tensor theory of time Mm -hmm. because nothing really begins to exist. They just exist at different points in time. Mm Yeah, so that's the critical thing to understand, if that makes some degree of sense. Yeah, um, and so I, the first part of the book, which is quite a bit actually, I spend, um, I take, uh, I go through all of the uh, many arguments that Craig's given in his fat series of books on the subject um, about why the tensed theory of time or presentism is the correct theory. And I basically, I don't think any of his arguments are very good. Um, and so I go through them systematically. Mm-hmm. I think there are good reasons to think that the tense less theory of time is correct, basically relating to um, general theory of relativity, where you may have heard about the idea of space-time and they're yeah. sort of connected to each other. Um, yeah, I think this makes a lot more sense under a, a tenseless theory of time than, a, than presentism that, that Craig has. So um, this is the first part of the – this is this takes up a fair bit of time, just basically discussing that I don't think time is tense like Craig says it is. If it's not, then Craig's argument can't even get off the ground. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow, that's that, that that's pretty deep. Uh, the first thing that came across my mind, though, is we got to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't hear anything about that temporal wall. Oh my God, I was thinking the same thing. He might decide to build something <laughs> like that, and you know, God knows what he said. So, oh. and William Link Craig also, <laughs> to be a bit more serious here, when Craig talks about his argument, he also talks about uh, the universe had to be caused by something quote unquote uncaused. Yeah. Which I hate yes, that yeah. term because what does that even mean? And like, how how would you come up with that? And it had also to transcend space and time because time first appeared also yeah 
and it had to be also immaterial and non-physical. That's nothing then. Yeah. It's, it's, that's something how, how that do you doesn't respond exist? to something like that? It's just yeah, well, maybe I can, at that point. Maybe I can speak to that. So I, I'm being just for focusing on sort of the first part of the argument, of course, which is about of course. the tense theory of time and, and the universe beginning to exist. So in terms of why the universe would have to begin to exist, he, he gives Craig gives a whole lot of arguments as to why you can't have um, actual infinities. Um, so, so the universe kind of existed forever, basically. Um, I, I won't talk a whole lot about that because a lot of the arguments are kind of boring, to be honest. Um, but, uh, you know, he... he um, he has this argument called Hilbert's Hotel, which is the idea that if you could have an actual infinity, you could have a hotel with infinitely many guests, and then you could move them around, and you'd have all these weird things happen. Uh, anyway, won't get into that. But um, so, so there's arguments to be had there about whether you, actual infinities can exist or not. But maybe, yeah, I'll move on to the, the latter parts of the arguments, which is sort of um, – if the universe had a cause, that cause was a personal creator. This is the fourth premise of what I call the extended Kalam cosmological argument. And this is what you were just talking about when, mm -hmm. when you mentioned uh, uh, that the cause would have to be sort of immaterial and outside space and time and so on. Um, now, I should note here that this, this, all of these issues here are strictly speaking not part of the um, Kalam cosmological argument as Craig defines it, right? Remember that that argument only concludes that the universe began to exist. Mm -hmm. So this is important because Craig uses this sort of distinction all the time in his debates or other responses. If someone says, oh yeah, but you know, how do you know the cause is immaterial or whatever, um, you know, de depending on the circumstance, he might just say, oh, you know, that's a separate issue, right? We're just talking here about where the Kalam just establishes that the universe began to exist and you're bringing other things into it, right? So you just, it might sound like I'm, um, uh, making a fuss about minor points here but it's, the point is craig does this all the time so you just have to be really careful about you know what part of the argument you're actually referring to um anyway so so here we're outside the uh, the sort of classical column and we're we're in the part of it that tries to draw the link between a cause of the universe and that cause being god right um so what craig says about this is that the cause of the universe has to have all of these properties it has to be um it has to be outside the universe uh itself so it has to be um, outside of space and outside of time and has to be therefore immaterial and and so forth um the main reason he gives for this by the way is the way he defines universe it might not sound like something that needs a definition um but there are different definitions of what is meant by universe so he defines the universe to be like um essentially all physical things that exist in, in sort of space and time. Yeah. Um, in which case, obviously, you can't have... If that's your definition of universe, then if there's a physical thing that, that caused other... Like caused the Big Bang, for example, then that would be part of the universe mm -hmm. and that would require a cause itself and so on. So, again, uh, he uses that definition to sort of um, get around things that people would suggest as other possible causes. Um you don't have to necessarily accept his definition of the universe. You, c you could say the universe is, you know, all of the things that are directly um, resulting from the Big Bang, for example, in which case you could still meaningfully talk about, well, could some material thing have caused the Big Bang? Um, anyways, but in terms of the main reasons he gives as to why um, the cause of the universe had to be – has to be an immaterial personal cause, he um, – Oh, there's various things that I could discuss, but I guess the one issue, one argument he gives is just to say, oh, well, there's no other possible candidates. He says it can't be a material cause because then that would be part of the universe and would need itself an explanation. And it can't be an abstract object like a number because they don't cause anything. So what have we got left? Well, it's basically, you know, a personal agent causing something to happen. Um, that's, that's one of the arguments he gives. And I think this is a terrible argument because I, I give a whole list of um, – 
other possible yeah. immaterial causes um, uh, drawn from uh, partly from various Eastern philosophies and, mm-hmm. and other uh, other worldviews that talk about potential things that are not personal agents but but could have potentially caused the um, the universe to come into being. Now, I don't believe in any of those things because um, I'm a materialist myself. But the point is that Craig can't just say, oh, well, there are no other possible alternatives mm-hmm. and, and argue for his thing. He does this elsewhere, by the way. It's another of his, his argumental strategies. So um, it's uh, – yeah, it's important to sort of make him step back and actually address the other possibilities, even if you don't necessarily believe them. You can't just. Uh, th- this is this is something he um, he gets people to um, sort of uh, box themselves in almost because maybe you're a materialist like me, and then you sort of um, then Craig says, well, there are no materialism doesn't work, so there are no other possibilities, and so your natural point, uh, natural approach is just to argue for a materialist approach. Um, but the thing is that. Y- Craig is making an argument there are no other possibilities, and so you can't let him off so easily. You have to get him to show that other non-material causes couldn't work as well, and, and this applies elsewhere. So anyways, so that's one of the arguments that he gives. The other argument, that he, well, the main argument that he gives is a, a v- variety of arguments in favor of um, something called agent causation. Um, and this gets quite technical because his idea is that an agent can can um, just cause things sort of out of nothing, which is what you need for the universe to come into being, right? There's, you know, the universe just sort of starts. Um, and um, particularly, Craig wants to explain how can you go from uh, something that exists timelessly, like outside of time, to something that exists in time. Um, because the idea is suppose you had some timeless entity mm-hmm. which just sort of existed outside of time it's hard to imagine that but yeah. let's just suppose well we have um, Nancy here she's pretty close to that <laughs> <laughs> right um, and then it uh, there's some sort of it exerts some sort of cause um, or it produces some sort of cause which then brings the universe into being which exists in time Craig's question is well how does that work because if if the timeless entity can exert some sort of cause or causal power that brings the um, t- uh, brings the temporal universe into being. Then why doesn't the universe exist sort of timelessly with the timeless entity? Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like the timeless entity kind of waits a while and then then produces. Yeah, but how its, do they which, wait a while when there's no time to wait? <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of a bit confusing. Um, language does get very difficult mm-hmm. here. Um, so anyway, Craig. Craig thinks that you need some way of breaking out of this dilemma of going from a timeless to a, a temporal entity. And he says that an, a free agent, a libertarian agent, is the only way you can do this. Um, there's various technical things he says about this, which I, it's a bit much to go into. But um, basically, I don't think his arguments are very convincing. Um, I, I think at the at the bottom of it, he, he gets into a quandary where he, he wants to say that an agent exercises its causal power, sort of freely chooses to exercise its causal power to bring the universe into being. But it seems to me that that would be an event, uh, a thing that happens uh, mm-hmm. in time. And, and by his premise, that would require a cause itself. And he just says, oh, no, it's not an event. It doesn't count as an event. And <laughs> I don't think that that's – yeah. And you can look at it exactly how he phrases that, but I don't think it's very plausible. I think mm-hmm. he, he paints himself into a bit of a corner there where um, – the account that he gives sort of would require um, a cause itself, which would then get you back into the infinite loop. So, so yeah. anyway, so, so I don't think his argument is very persuasive. You can obviously look at my book to, to see there. Of but um, yeah, so those are the two main reasons. He says there's no other possibilities or um, libertarian agents, obviously God would be the main example of this, have special causal powers that allow them to do this. But if you, 
there's a lot of I guess the main point is, and this is a theme throughout the book, there's a lot of uh, nuanced philosophical points that he makes and sort of premises that you have to buy. And if you don't really find those persuasive, you're not going to find his, his, his conclusion persuasive or his argument for the mm-hmm. conclusion persuasive. And I think this is what you don't hear in the um, in the YouTube debates because it, it, they just never have time to get into this amount of detail. No, no, of course not. And this is this is the reason why philosophy class it looks like time slows down a lot because <laughs> you need that much more time to explore everything. <laughs> so okay, so let's let's go quickly on the uh, the, the fine tuning argument that he also brings. That's another one of his favorite. Yeah, sorry, I, I know I I do want to summarize these things. Oh, but of course, sorry. You do have to delve in a little bit to understand where it breaks down. I think because it, it's sort of, yeah. These arguments generally don't break down on on the on the surface level. It's sort of you have to delve down a couple of levels to see where the well the rotten foundations mm-hmm. are to to use a crude analogy. But anyways, yeah. So the fine tuning argument. Let's turn to that. So um, the fine tuning argument is um, is different to the cos uh, the Kalam cosmological argument because it attempts attempts to show that the um, the, not the existence of the universe, which is what the Kalam relates, or the beginning of the universe, but the certain properties of the universe um, point to the existence of a god. In particular, he argues that the um, the fact that the universe is finely tuned for life um, is is evidence that it must have been, uh, or overwhelmingly likely mm-hmm. to have been created by a, a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is one version of the argument, which I'll just read out to, to set the stage. So the first premise here is the universe is fine-tuned for the existence of embodied intelligent life. Second premise, the only explanations for this fine-tuning are chance, physical necessity, or design. Third premise, n- neither chance nor physical necessity are plausible explanations for fine-tuning. So the conclusion is that fine-tuning can only be plausibly explained by design, which means a, a god, uh, yeah. a designer god. Um, and I, I guess it follows from that that then God exists. If, yeah. So, so the, this this is a, what's called an inference to the best explanation, which is sometimes called an abductive argument. It says that there's this thing which is strange, and we can explain it by positing some sort of entity yeah. or process. In this case, in this case, it's God, and therefore we have reason for believing in God. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I think this is a, a sound method of reasoning because we use this in science a lot. So, if we have a, a set of phenomena that we can explain by positing a physical theory. Um, then and that physical theory then explains a lot of those phenomena, then we have reason to believe the theory is true. So th- the question is whether we think Craig's explanation is a good one and whether there are other possible explanations. So in premise two here, he says the only possible explanations are chance, physical necessity, or design. So by design, he means that, you know, basically God made it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll come back to that because I actually think it's a really bad explanation. Physical necessity means like this is the only possible way it could have been. Um, and chance means, well, it's just... A fluke, like it could have been a whole lot of other ways. It just happened to be this one, and there's no real explanation for it. Yeah. Um, that's usually the, the one they favor a lot, right? A lot of people, a lot of people. They, then this, this, this is the point where they trot out some incredible number, like twenty-seven yeah, zeros, and that could not have been a result of chance. It's too big of the odds, and this is what really uh, hooks on the average uh, theist. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so you, you'll see all sorts of ridiculously big or small, depending on which way you're looking at it, numbers are trotted out uh, as to indicate that, oh, there's no way it could have been like this just by chance. It's incredibly implausible. Um, so let me just give a bit of background as to what, what these numbers sort of are trying to get at. So the idea is that there's a whole – in physics, there's a whole bunch of um, what are called physical constants. So these are well, – the way Craig talks about it, and I think this is more or less right. They're just numbers that physicists plug into various equations like um, – 
the um, quantum mechanics or relativity and other things like that, or, or the initial conditions for the start of the universe, like how much the, the ratio of the mass of a proton to an electron and, and how strong gravitation is compared to the other forces of nature and things like that. So they're, they're numbers that are put in. We can discover the numbers experimentally, but we as yet don't have any deeper theoretical reasons for why they are the way they are. They, yeah. They're just sort of given to us, it seems. So that's what the physical necessity response gets to. It's like, well, actually, there's a deeper reason why they had to be the values they are. Um, generally, I mean, physicists kind of hoped that they might find a, find a deeper reason, but it seems kind of unlikely at this point that you could explain all of the physical constants by some sort of overarching theory, which itself wouldn't then require a similar explanation. So I, I, um, although I don't think Craig has shown that physical necessity is, is an impossible explanation, I think it's, it's probably not that likely. Um, but the idea of the fine-tuning argument then is that we've got these numbers, uh, which we know the value they have, and but they, as far as we know, they could have had a whole range of values. Um, they they could have been, you know, extremely high or extremely low, and there's no particular reason why, as far as we know, they had to be the value that they are. And and this is where they, they um come up with these really small probabilities is because basically they say, well, there's this huge range that the values could have had, but only a very narrow range that would have supported life. Mm-hmm. And so the usual argument is, well, you know, if, if such and such uh, parameter had been different, then stars wouldn't have been able to form or the universe would just be full of black holes or planets wouldn't, wouldn't have stable orbits or and so on and so on, right? And all of these um, alternative possibilities, so the argument goes, would not be conducive to the existence of intelligent life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so only a very narrow range of these values are consistent with with the existence of intelligent life um and so and so you, you sort of take the small range divided by the whole wide um, possibility space and you get these these tiny tiny numbers and then the argument usually compounds by saying well yeah this is just for one parameter but we also need this other parameter and this yes. other parameter mm-hmm. and so on and so you multiply these tiny probabilities together and they just get ridiculously small so this is the fine-tuning argument right the only way we can explain this um apparently um apparent well miracle is is by positing well actually it is a miracle and, and sort of god did it so so that's that's essentially what the argument is um yeah there's uh, more mm-hmm. yeah, oh yeah ab- absolutely make it precise but that's the basic idea um so the main response is uh, so uh typically the response that um atheists or non-theists will give is to challenge premise two um or premises two or three, really, that uh, premise two is that the only explanations for fine-tuning are chance, physical necessity, or design. So they might try and come up with some other explanation. Using anthropic arguments is a common one, which is you may have heard of. It's something like, well, we could only observe the universe being fine-tuned if a fine-tuned universe that supported our existence um, existed. We couldn't observe it in other cases. And so that that gets all confusing, and I don't really talk about that. I just wanted to highlight it. You may have heard discussion like that if you look into this. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Um, Premise three says that neither chance nor physical necessity are plausible candidates. So typically, atheists will say, oh, you know, chance is plausible or physical necessity is plausible, or they'll make arguments along these sorts of lines. I say a few things about that, but mostly I focus on premise one, because I don't think the universe is fine-tuned for the existence of embodied intelligent life, or I guess I should be more careful and say, I don't think there's very good evidence to think that that's the case. You think think if it was fine-tuned, it'd be much more prevalent than this one speck on a blue planet, right? (laughs) You would think. And it's vastly decreasing. (laughs) Especially on this show. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, well, the spec on the blue planet is is an interesting way of putting it because I think that that's actually uh, the big problem, right? Because so Craig Craig says that it's just uh, physicists have established that 
or astrobiologists and so on have established that the universe is fine-tuned for the existence of embodied intelligent life um, and that you kind of can't argue with this. But, well, I, I do argue with it. And, and the way I do it is I look through – I go through a series of examples of these uh, some of these constants and look at um, – so, so there's a physicist called Martin Rees who's published a book called um, – just six numbers where he um goes through six numbers of the of the six physical constants that have to be sort of fine-tuned for the existence of life and this is not the only physicist who's made these sorts of arguments but he's one of the most prominent ones and craig cites him so i I sort of go through those systematically and look at um look at what he says and i I quote for him at length uh, which is gets a little tedious but i I just want to be sure that i'm not uh taking him out of context or anything like that um what what I what I, I think I show is that what Reese is talking about in all of his examples, and also what physicists talk about in in their other examples, when they talk about fine tuning, because they do talk about fine tuning. But what they're saying is that if the if these parameters were a little bit different, life as we know it, that is life on our mm-hmm. little blue dot, would not be able to exist. Now that is absolutely critical because it means life as we know it means um, you know carbon based biological entities mm-hmm. that live on a rocky planet that. Um, orbits a sort of a main mainline G-type star, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes billions of years to evolve, and, and you know all of these other things. Um, so yes, as far as we know, if the parameters of the physical constants were a little bit different, that type of life would not be able yes. to exist. But another um, might. But look at Craig's uh, first premise. He says that the universe is fine-tuned. Does he, does he say the universe is fine-tuned for the existence of carbon-based life on rocky planets? No. He says it's fine-tuned for the existence of embodied intelligent life. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's, there's a big gap here between what he means when he talks about fine-tuned and what the physicists mean. They mean our type of life. He means any type of embodied intelligent life. So then you have to ask the question, if the constants of, of physics were different, what other types of intelligent life could, of embodied intelligent life, uh, could have existed? And the answer is we have no freaking idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> because we barely understand what type of life forms could exist in our universe, mm-hmm. let alone other possible types of universe, especially when you start talking about changing multiple constants. And so this is what I say. I say we effectively have no idea about what the, the space of possibilities is. In order for this fine-tuning argument to work, you'd have to be able to know that, well, if we changed constants A, B, and C to these values, um, then no intelligent life here. And then if you change them to these other values, oh, no no intelligent life here, and so on for this massive range of possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact is that we don't know any of those things. We don't even really know what types of life could exist in our own universe. We certainly don't know about... Uh, what would happen if we change one of these constants, let alone changing like six of them at once. And we're just talking about a wholly different universe. Um, so, you know, I try to make this argument in a bit more of a rigorous way, but that's the basic idea. Like Craig has, well, the physicists and certainly Craig just have no idea what types of life would be possible if we started changing all of these constants of nature. Um, and that completely undermines the argument in my view because there's just um, – you, unless you want to say that God has a special reason for creating carbon-based life forms on a rocky planet orbiting a G-type star sort of thing, um, unless you can say that you can explain that by positing a, a creator, which I don't think you can, that's just mm-hmm. ad hoc, then I don't think that the um, the design hypothesis really really gets you anywhere. And that's the real problem with, with positing a, a creator is that if God is all-powerful and could do anything, then 
it's very hard to use him to explain anything because an explanation needs to constrain the range of possibilities. It needs to say, of all of the possibilities, this is why this yeah. particular one happened. Uh, yeah. And, you know, your explanation tells you that, or at least why that's really likely. But God is very hard to appeal to to do that because he doesn't really constrain the possibility space because he could kind of do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also discussed this in, in this chapter as well about how the the um, – positing a, a designer doesn't doesn't really help that much because you have to posit other things about, well, God would want to create this sort of universe or that sort of universe, and, and then you just start positing all these extra things which are um, make the argument more complicated. Which is interesting also because a lot of philosophers have posited that there are the sure sign that there is not a lot of intelligent life out there is they never tried to contact us. So, <laughs> so. Well, we are kind of like the Alabama of the universe. Yeah, I think so too. So... <laughs> Don't really blame them if there is any out there. <laughs> so, maybe, so, maybe they're just waiting for us to reach an appropriate level of enlightenment exactly. before they bother talking to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. No, no, a lot. I think, I think uh, somebody like William Link Craig is very good at presenting these kind of facts. But people don't think for half a second. I was having this uh, this discussion with a theist. Say, oh, we, there's there's plenty of life on this planet. I said, well, no, no. I mean, think about it this way. Just us, just humans, we barely inhabit about maybe 10% of the Earth's crust. You know, most of our cities and populations are like near water sources, near the equator. You know, we, there's there's plenty of the, 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 most of the surface of the planet is mostly water that we don't inhabit. And it's not water we can drink. It's not water we can drink. There's a lot of deserts and mountain areas where there's nobody living in there. So we really don't like take a lot of space and people don't think about this. They think about humans being all over the planet like like we like you're all over your your own house and so when you see these staggering numbers about what was the argument they were saying it's like shooting a bullet from jupiter to earth on a target about three centimeters and hitting another bullet on the way half through at the speed of light well people say of course it can't be chance right they 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 they, they, they get these numbers but they don't actually analyze them thoroughly yeah, so those those numbers I should have circled back to this. Those numbers are what I would describe as made up. So they're or I mean there's some basis to them, but they're making a whole host of assumptions. Particularly, it's assuming that all of those. Remember, I said the the way you get those numbers is to look at one constant, mm-hmm. um, to look at the space of ranges it could possibly take, and then the range that would be conducive to our type of life, mm-hmm. which is actually what we know about, and assume that all of the other sort of if you're imagining a big like line here, assume that all the other spaces along the spectrum would not be conducive to intelligent life and then multiply all those probabilities together for separate constants, right? So that's assuming first that you know what types of life forms would be possible, intelligent life forms would be possible in those other regions of the spectrum, which no one does. That's just just purely an assumption. The second thing is that when you multiply them together, you're assuming that there's no interaction between the the constants. That is that um, you you might need special combinations of constants to get life, which almost certainly is true. Mm -hmm. Um, When you multiply them together, you're assuming they're independent of each other, which is almost certainly not true. So um, I'm just emphasizing there that sometimes that, you know, atheists will feel like they need to explain these numbers, whereas in fact the numbers are just bogus. You don't you don't need to accept these numbers. Mm-hmm. No, no, you don't. You certainly don't. D- James, what, what do you feel for for a guy who studied William Lane Craig? What do you think is is? I mean, I, I personally, when I listen to the man, I don't really understand his appeal, but there obviously is an appeal. And you think it's just simple bias, or do you? What, what is it about William Lane Craig that people that theists like? Well, um, not all theists like William Lane Craig, and uh, he appeals to a certain type of theist or a particular mindset, I guess. Um, Well, I can only speculate, but I will offer a speculation, and I think it's something to do with what Craig is 
uh, offering is, um, I mean, he's reasonably explicit about this. What he offers is a sort of intellectual permission or a sort of intellectual respectability for uh, either theists, existing theists, or kind of people who want to believe, um, you know, consciously or subconsciously, um, and but are worried about, um, you know, new atheism or science in general or sort of um, secular philosophy or various sorts of intellectual type mm-hmm. arguments that have been put forward um, in recent decades or in, indeed longer ago than that, which sort of say that, oh, faith is unreasonable, you, you can't um, be a rational person and, and be religious and these sorts of things. I mean, there's obviously more specific things that are said, but the point is that that's a, a common meme, especially with the neo-atheist movement. And um, so a lot of – I think this bothers – this doesn't bother all religious people, but it bothers some people who want to think of themselves as sort of rational and uh, hard-headed and so forth. Now, what Craig does is he offers a kind of an – as I said, an intellectual respectability or a sort of a, a permission for these for these people. So he provides his arguments in a very logical way. He cites the premises and, and shows how the conclusion follows from that, and he, he gives all of his evidences and cites authorities and so forth. Um, and his arguments are generally well constructed in this way and, and get into technicalities. And the thing is, uh, what he really, once he's done that, once he's provided this uh, plausible intellectual framework, then there's, for most people, that, that's sort of sufficient. Um, all you really have to do to persuade someone of, of an argument is to make it sufficiently plausible um, far enough down so that uh, the so that the amount of depth that you have to dig into to find its sort of rotten foundations is further than most people can be bothered going, right? And this doesn't yes. just apply to apologists. This applies everywhere. So as long as the argument looks good as far as most people are willing to go, then you've succeeded, right? I mean, yes. that's kind of a very cynical point to make, I think. But I no, think that that's actually true. the point of it. Like, you just have to you just have to outlast people, right? As long as you give responses further. I mean, imagine that William Lane Craig's debates just went on for like you know, a hundred hours, and we, they just went on for increasing amount of detail in all of the premises, right? How many people, you know, you can think, you can imagine sort of how many of the theists in the audience or, or people who are interested, um, at what point would they stop watching? Like, yeah. they're not going to watch a hundred hours. I mean, some people will, right? But, you know, just just an example way of thinking about it. As long as Craig's arguments seem plausible for the first two hours, ten hours, I don't know, however long people go, then then that's mission accomplished, and they'll go, and they'll feel um, like intellectually satisfied, and when they have conversations with atheists or non believers they'll have enough material to um cover the first you know round or two of rebuttals because that's all most conversations go to right um and so they've sort of they have all they need so to speak to feel intellectually satisfied and to respond to people who will um come across them whether the argument at base is actually whether the arguments are actually good is kind of well it's kind of irrelevant almost Mm -hmm. So essentially, the short attention span of people is his best weapon that he actually has to make his argument well, I mean, stick. People have limited time, and not everyone is as obsessed with you know pushing these things through to the as far as you can go as, as I am. So I, I mean, it makes some sense, right? I, I, I'm not saying it's completely unreasonable for people to um, to try to. Um, you know, I guess economize on these sorts of things. I guess what I would say is that that's why it's incumbent on people like me who think Craig's arguments are not very good to try to explain why and just kind of bring that up so that we we can start talking about mm-hmm. the the critical issues, you know, earlier than the, the hour 50 mark or something like that. So I, I, I guess it's incumbent on people on the other side of the, the spectrum to present the rebuttals uh, in a convincing way so that people will take notice earlier on. Um, and I don't think people have been very good with doing that with Craig's arguments. So I've tried to make a step in that direction with my book. 
And I think you are doing quite well with doing so, sir. Thank you so much, James, for explaining all of this to us today. My God, I think we we had a very great lesson that we could probably go with yeah. all this forever. Because <laughs> I I I've never really listened to Link. Um, him. Uh, wow, my brain's glitching on his first name. Um, uh, I I grew up listening to um, Kent Hovind, which is uh, fun. Yes. Um, so I never really listened to Lane Craig, but hearing the explanation of these arguments he put forward and the reasons why there's faults in them is very helpful. Yeah. So, like, it's been very informative. Yeah, well, I, I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. And I think it's also good, not just because uh, this is one of the actually the main reasons I wrote the book, not just to respond to Craig, because I should emphasize, and I say this in the book, I'm not particularly, I'm not really at all interested in like deconverting people from Christianity mm-hmm. or anything like that. So I'm not at any way trying to argue that you shouldn't believe in God or you shouldn't believe in Jesus or anything. I'm just, what I want people to do is think critically about things and know how to analyze an argument and not believe things for bad reasons. Yeah. So I, I don't think people should believe in God or Jesus because primarily of uh, the arguments, or at least most of the arguments that Craig gives, because I don't think they're very good. Um, there may be other reasons to believe uh, and you know, I sort of leave those unaddressed. But yeah, at the end of the day, what I want people to do is be able is have the skills to critically analyze arguments and to sort of ask the right sort of questions and uh, understand how to evaluate evidence and, and authorities and so on. And um, yeah, if if people come out of my book with uh, a, a, a better appreciation for that, then I would regard that as a success. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm pretty sure that it will happen. James, thank <laughs> you so much for explaining all this today, but the mic is all yours, my friend. If people want to find out more about you, your books, and where they can get them, be shameless, my, my friend. Plug yourself. Where can they find you? Sure, right. Well, I mean, the easiest way to get a copy of the book is just to uh, look on Amazon. Um, you can buy it in uh, paperback or in um, uh, Kindle form. So, I mean, the books aren't – I don't know exactly what it would be in Canada, but they're not too expensive. Mm-hmm. So, uh certainly recommend picking it up and having a read if you're interested. Um uh, maybe I'll emphasize that the book is deliberately written to be modular, so you can just sort of start at whichever chapter you're interested in. I emphasize this because a lot of people start from the beginning and they start reading about the tenses and tensile theories of time, and they're like, yeah. oh, it's too much. Don't feel the need to start there. Um, it's delib- I started there because I thought that was a logical place to start, but mm, you, know, you, can, you can start wherever. <laughs> no, you know, I'm going to um, say the opposite. I'm going to say, no, read the damn whole damn thing. Don't be a theist. <laughs> no, don't quit saying, halfway he's through. He's not saying don't not read the whole thing. He's just you don't have to start at the beginning. Yeah, but yes, I'm saying right. don't be don't be like a theist. Don't be the short attention span kind of guy that <laughs> William Lane Craig likes. Be full, fully informed. Don't be like me. <laughs> you just don't have um, to read it all in the right order. That's right. Because wibbly wobbly, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Wibbly wobbly, yeah. timey wimey. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a little bit like that. <laughs> um, if you're interested in some of my other writings, I have a blog as well. I actually been meaning to put more of my um book material on the blog there's some of it there already but um it's called the godless theist um if you just type that into google you should find it it's it's deliberately an oxymoron right but it's not the godless atheist right that's what some people think the godless theist Mm -hmm. okay um so um you know it's the idea is that you sort of think about it from multiple perspectives and and, Mm -hmm. you know find the good things in, in both sides of the argument and so on but anyway you can check out that if you're interested um in some of my further writings i also have i have a variety of issues of philosophy and um and uh religion that i discuss there um i also run a podcast which is kind of 
in some sense irrelevant, but might be of interest. It's called the Science of Everything podcast. You just Google that. You should Ooh. find it. I just talk about a whole bunch of topics in science. Um, so perfect for me. So now we need to bring him yes. back to be talking about this podcast <laughs> as well. Perfect. <laughs> James, we'll, we'll certainly make that happen, my friend. And if you'd be so kind, send send me the links to these shows. We'll pass them on. Yeah, put no them worries, in the notes can, of the show. Uh, but before I let you go, James, I got to have you say, hi, I'm James Fordor, and I took a left to the valley. Hi, I'm James Ferdo, and I took a left at the valley. And that was author James Ferdo. What an interesting tidbit of information I know, we got there. And I love how fast he was talking, and he could have just kept on going. Oh, yeah. We could have I'm like, we information gotten... soaking into the sponge that is my brain. Well, okay. Well, my, my, my brain is not as spongy as yours, apparently. I'm young. You're old. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> wow. But that was a lot of really, really good information. And I think, mm-hmm. you know... I think he's completely right. Uh, a lot of people will just take the surface argument and if it absorbs or if it aligns, I should say, directly with their preconceived notion of what they like, boom, they accept it. Yeah. And I mean, we should almost bring a psychologist on this eventually and yes. see, see if we get d- deeper on We'll that. talk about like cognitive biases and like... Yeah, absolutely. I love... That would be yeah. very, very interesting to, to discuss. Wow. So that was a great... A great bit of information. Yes. I'm, really, I'm really happy we did that. Okay. We'll have him back to talk about science. Yes, and we'll Yay. have him back to talk about his podcast and science. Yes, of everything. Of everything. The science of everything. I love science. That was already titled for a movie, wasn't it? No, that's the theory, theory of, of everything. everything. Oh, yeah. Close enough. It was a good movie, though. Thank you so much, ladies, for being with me. And thank you. Literally, I try. (laughs) For being with us today. Don't always succeed. (laughs) You can follow us at liftatvalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at LETV Podcast. You can send us an email at liftatvalley at outlook.com. Give us a five-star review wherever you find us. It really helps us and helps Mm -hmm. others find the show. Okay, coming up. Well, we're coming around the... I'm so excited. <laughs> we're coming around the, the holiday season. So our next show, we're going to have Tom and Cecil. And, and we should have some eggnog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. From no, Cognitive no. Dissonance. And we'll be sending them straight on uh, what the proper things of many things are. And, uh, of course, we'll have a Christmas special for the holidays. And we'll also have a year in review. Now, looking up at next year, we'll have... Andrew Jackson, and he'll be talking about his uh, book, Life After Dogma. Ooh. And we'll have our our, uh, our our friend Rich Lyons. Remember, we did the show with the, uh, uh, when we got Stone? Yes. No. He's got his podcast. <laughs> no, we don't remember. I do. <laughs> Called Life After Faith. It's going to be so fun. He was so fun. Our friend Chris the Christian Christensen is going to be taking on John, the godless engineer wow. and the history city of Jesus. And our, the ladies from Forsaking Faith Yay. will be returning to talk to us about if, if the Bible is actually good literature. In mm-hmm. February, we'll have our friend Goddess Cranium. He'll be bringing back his uh, partner in crime, Shannon. They'll be talking about their podcast. And we'll also have Zach from uh, Zach Religion Podcast. He'll be talking Ooh. to us. So I would just appear on the show, by the way. You can look oh, that fun. up. And of course... Great announcement. In February, mid-February, we'll have the legendary Matt Dillahunty will be joining us. Woohoo! I'm so, so excited. Yes, that will be now very fun. Now we just fun. have to figure out what we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully not scare him away. Wait, 
we have to we can't just bring him on to tell him how amazing he is and how much we love him and how much he has influenced our atheism we, we have to talk about stuff more than that I, I think you know I was I was talking to Nancy a bit before there and you know the thing about Matt I think he is the closest thing to uh, Hitch 2.0 yeah you know, I think people love his non-nonsense approach, and I think that's one of the things that makes him a darling of the masses. Yes. So, we'll, well have to ask him he, he gets to be an asshole when we can't. <laughs> we can too, but, you know, I think he's just better at it yeah, than Yeah, but we, are. we aren't in those discussions. Yeah, that's true. We can listen to him, and when we would just want to punch someone, he can just tell them that they're wrong. <laughs> and it's just like, thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. Until next time. Okay. We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them while they planning to molest them? We teaching them to respect them. Respect them. Fuck that. The system is broke down, working backwards in the only action of tactic. I plan to practice now is to attack them. The parties of God's hands are bloodstained. Millions of murders by believers, and they're all in God's name. And let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful, but I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful. Told to be quiet, you're not alone. Speak your mind, time to let it be known. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist, atheist, atheist.